Um, it, it is really good to be with you all. Um, as Marshall said, my name is Luke Rakestraw. Me and Celeste, I know a lot of you all because we were a huge part of this church. Uh, you all were our family the last five years, and it's just really good to be back with you all and to see you all. Um, tonight, I'll be finishing up Titus. The last couple of weeks, Marshall has been in a, in a series through the book of Titus, and now we're on the third and last chapter. And some of this might feel repetitive, um, from what Marshall preached on last week in chapter 2, and that's because it, it is repetitive. Um, Paul repeats himself in chapter 3, but he does that for a purpose. He, he's repeating himself intentionally because we need to hear this. And so um, I will be reading Titus 3, just 1 through 8. Um, I don't know what's up on the screen, but if you, if you have a Bible or it's on the screen, just Titus 3, 1 through 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I pray that you would open our eyes again this evening to see wonderful things from your word. And God, there is a lot of words here tonight. There's a lot of things that are going on in our world. There's a lot of things going on in our hearts. And I just pray for your stillness. I pray that over the next 30 minutes that you would calm our hearts down, that we could focus on you that you use the power of your spirit, working through the power of your word to remind us tonight who we are in you and what we are meant for. In Christ's name we pray, amen. It is the first Sunday in September, uh, which is uh, Labor Day weekend, Derby Day weekend, and I just realized yesterday that's why I'm preaching uh, this morning. Um, usually on Labor Day weekend I get a call from a pastor saying, can you fill in for me, because it is Labor Day weekend. Um, but... That, I guess that's part of, of being intern and part of, part of that lifestyle. Is I, I preach the holidays now. But what I, what, what I mean for this morning, the fact that we're here in September, means that there's another month that's come and, come and gone 2020. This is the first week in September, which means another month has come and gone. And at this point in the year, I don't know anyone who's not trying to get out of 2020. This year has been the year of get me out, of looking forward. Uh, in fact, uh, the rapper, writer, artist Lecrae tweeted out this morning, Dear God, can I please get a movie preview for 2021? Can I get a preview of what's to come? Because we don't like what's going on now. We're all trying to predict the future. We're all trying to figure out what's going to happen. We're all just trying to get to the next week, the next month, into the next year. And in this time of so much looking forward, the New York Times actually did something really interesting and something really powerful. Over the summer, on their Sunday front cover, they wanted us to remember. 
And what they wanted us to remember was not another report, not any more statistics. They wanted us to remember names. And those names were from people all over the country who had passed away during the year 2020. They listed name after name after name of all different types of people. And in one sentence, they wrote from their obituaries what they were remembered for. Some were really funny, as you can imagine. Fred Walter Gray, 75, Benton County, Washington. He liked his bacon hash browns really crispy. That's what he was remembered for. Some were really sad. Jermaine Jarrow, 87, Michigan. Not enough time to enjoy her new marriage. Some were really inspiring. Bassie Offing, 25, Chicago, Illinois. Saw, saw friends at their worst, but brought out their best. And it is really sobering to think about your life narrowed down to one sentence. It's really sobering to think about the end of it all in one sentence, what will I be remembered most for? And in our passage this evening, that is exactly what Paul is trying to do for the church at Crete. He is stating his final case for Titus on, he, on what he wants their church to be remembered for. What he wants Paul, what he wants Titus to be remembered for in Crete. And he wants, them, he wants to remind them of two things in particular. He wants to remind them of their purpose. What exactly are you here for in the world? And he wants to remind them of their identity. Who you are in this world. So he wants to tell them their purpose. This is what you are here for. And he wants to tell them their identity. This is who you are. And both those things are extremely important for us to discuss tonight. And this passage is actually one of the best in the New Testament to help us out. So first point, remember your purpose. What are you here for in this world? Look at verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. What does Paul say we are here for? Every good work. Every good work. And there's a lot that you could say about these two verses. I know that first line actually can probably be a stumbling block in our world, in our church today. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And I'm actually not going to spend too much time on this, not because I'm trying to avoid it, but because Marshall actually talked about it at the end of last week's sermon. And so I, I, would, I would advise you to talk to him if you have any more questions on that, what it's like to submit to religious authorities. Because Marshall walked us through how submission, whether it's religious, whether it's governmental, whether it's family authorities we're submitting to, is always under God, which means it makes both parties responsible. So we're responsible as the people that submit, and our authorities are responsible to make sure it's easy for us to submit. But like I said, Marshall talked about that last week, and I'm sure he would like nothing else than to spend Labor Day talking to you about the church and government in the world. Back to Paul's main point in verse 1 and 2. What is the church for? How does the church respond to the world around them? Paul says, with good works. So much so that he says in verse 1 that we should be ready for every good work. Not reacting to things going on, that we should be actively prepared for them. And then he repeats himself again in verse 8 at the back end, and he says, be careful to devote themselves to good works. Be careful, be intentional, be fixated on, almost obsessed with this idea of good works. God's people should be obsessed with good works. And I just want to point out one thing that maybe stood out to you as we read verses 1 through 2, because there's so much here. 
What's surprising about this passage is not that God would ask us to do good works. Most people realize that the church should. What's surprising about this passage is how specific Paul actually gets in what he demands from our good works. Because we are okay when the Bible says to be a good person and do good things. We are not okay when he asks us to take a step further and get specific with those good things. And Paul does take it a step further. He actually defines the good works that he wants us to see. And look how specific these are. He says to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy or humility toward all people. This is exactly what he did last week in chapter 2. He got really specific with the church there. And you might be asking... These are so specific. How in the world will they make any difference in our world? Have you not watched the news? Have you not read the newspaper? Are you not on social media? How are those things you just listed, how specific and ordinate they are, how are they going to make any difference to us today? Is something like being gentle, not gossiping, actually going to change anything about our world? And Paul says yes. And in my experience, I would say yes too. This is my eighth fall at the University of Kentucky with Campus Outreach, like Marshall said. There's nothing that I love more um, than, than getting to do ministry with college students. And what I've realized and what you all probably know is that most college students want to change the world. That makes them really excited. They want to make a difference. They want to get involved. They're very ambitious. Knowing you all at this church, you are the same way. But, but ironically, the person that has changed me the most, more than any other, had no intention on changing the world. Her name was Lauren Wilson. Some of you might know who she is, most of you don't. She never wanted to change the world. She was far too shy to ever want to do that. But here are some of the things that she did do while she was in college. She showed up early to campus outreach, our large group, every Wednesday night to sit by people that were sitting by themselves because when she came to college, she was so lonely, she didn't want anyone else to experience how lonely she was. So she would get there early, not to show off, but to sit by people that were by themselves. She drove her mentally challenged brother to class every day from Georgetown, so he'd be able to get the same education that she was getting. When she graduated, she wrote a handwritten letter to all the other girls in her Bible study, stating specific ways that they had loved her and encouraged her in Christ. And when Lydia, our daughter, was born, she came to our house, not just with a meal, but she had a hand-knitting blanket that was given to Lydia. And reading all those together at the same time, you might think, wow, is that, that, that person is incredible. But in the moment, those are just ordinary, specific good works done in loving kindness of our Savior. Nothing really world-changing about any of those. Not going to make the 6 o'clock news. Not even a lot of people know about Lauren. But when she showed up, she showed up like Jesus. And she brought Jesus into every conversation, every good work that she did. She did specific good works for specific people in specific places, exactly what the people of God are created for. In the words of the writer Trevin Wax, it is love that is nearness, that, that is nearest that actually goes the farthest. It is love that is nearest to us that actually goes the farthest in this world. And that is a really hard work for us as the church today. It is really hard for the church to get specific. We would much rather, and we are much more comfortable living in a general and abstract world, where it is much easier to hate what's going on in the world out there than to love the neighbor right in front of us. 
we are, we are, if we're honest tonight, we are not like Lauren. We are much more like Linus, the character from the cartoon Charlie Brown, when he said, I love mankind, I just don't like people. We love the general. You start talking about the specific, it makes us uncomfortable. And Paul says Christians should not just be good in general, but you should be good for something. You should be good for someone. You should be good somewhere. So what are Christians for? We are for specific, ordinary, good works. Have I got you feeling guilty enough yet tonight? Are you ready to do some really good work this week out of all the guilt that I just stirred up in your heart? You probably know that that will not be enough. Shame, guilt, fear, these these great motivators in our world, they do not work what the Christians are called to do. It's too hard. Shame, guilt, and fear will not help you last in what Paul is calling you to do with every good work. So how do we get this motivation? How do we get motivated to do specific good works in our world? We've seen our need to remember our purpose, what we are actually here for. Now let's remember our identity, who we are. And that identity will actually provide the motivation that you desperately need this evening. So remember who you are. Who does Paul say that we are? You see it in verses 3 through 7, that you are sinners saved by grace. Isn't it interesting, after going through the list of all these things we're to do, he then says this in verse 3. Verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Why should we do these good works? What's our motivation? Paul says, remember that we were just like them. We were just like the world. And there are two great equalizers in the Bible that really help us remember we're all on even ground here. One is not mentioned in the passage. It's the doctrine of the Imago Dei, that every single person is created in the image of God and so should be treated with worth and dignity just because of who they're created by. That's not in this passage. The second great equalizer in the Bible is here, and it's the doctrine of original sin. The fact that we all are and were sinners, that we're all born into sin, And what this means is that there is no one here tonight, there is not one person here tonight that at one time was not foolish, that was not disobedient, that was not enslaved to their own desires. There's no one in here that that's not true of. And remembering that, that you were once a sinner, will change you. And it will change how you treat other people. I'll give you an example. I became a Christian in college, and my, my freshman year, I had a very difficult roommate. As some of you all probably can say in your own stories, you, you have difficult friendships, difficult, difficult people in your life. And I remember I would just complain all the time about this person. He doesn't care. He's too loud. He's a slob. He stinks. Yeah. I would just complain all the time about my relationship with him. And I was talking to an older man from our church about this one day. And he, he said, Luke, what would you do if you're walking through campus tomorrow? I went to WKU. If you're walking through the campus of Western Kentucky University and someone runs into you and just knocks you over, what would you do? And I said, I, I would probably get really mad. I probably wouldn't say anything because I'm more passive-aggressively mad, but I, I would be getting really mad on the inside. 
And he said, okay, what would you do if you got up and you realized that person was blind and they knocked into you because they were blind? I said, it would change things. I would stop probably worrying about my own self and my frustrations and see if that other person's okay. My frustration would turn to compassion. And that illustration doesn't even do what Paul says here, justice, because Paul takes it even farther. It would be like if I was blind, somehow there's a miracle and I, and I could see, and then a blind person ran into me. I would have double the compassion because I once was in the same condition that they were. So Paul says, we are sinners. But Paul is not stopping verse 3. We're not just sinners. That would be miserable. We are saved sinners. Look at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. So as we have have responded to this world with evil, hatred, stirring up strife, putting ourselves forward, God responds to us with goodness and loving kindness, making peace with us even though we were His enemy, giving Himself for us even when we didn't deserve it. And this this section, verses 4 through 7, is most likely a creed that was given over and over again in the early church because it was so rich with the goodness of God. And I don't have all the time to go through this, but if you want something really encouraging for the rest of the week, just read back through this. But the central focus of verses 4 through 7 is that ending line in in the first first line of verse 5, that he saved us. And why did he save us? We're not just sinners that are saved. We are sinners that are saved by grace. Verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Verse 6. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs with him. The Christian life is one of grace. Not deserved, not earned, grace. And this is why Paul is asking us to remember it tonight, because we have a tendency to forget. We have a tendency to forget that, gr- that this grace shows us that God loved us, not because we were so lovely, but because He is. We have a tendency to forget that this grace shows us that God did not base His love on our performance or on our own works, but on Jesus's. Are you starting to see the connection that Paul is trying to make between who we are and what we do? Are you starting to see the motivation that we need? How grace motivates us for good works in this world? It all hinges on that word in verse 7. So that being justified by his grace. And that's the final question for you all tonight. How specific have you all actually gotten? How specific have you gotten? Not just with your good works. I think you should ask yourself that question but also with God's grace. In the same way that we are general with good works, we get really general with God's grace. Have you let, like the song said, God break you with the power of his grace? Have you let it work itself down into the darkest parts of your heart, into your regrets, into your failures, into your sufferings, into your struggles? Most people think, of course, God loves the world, but they have a lot harder time saying God loves me. God was gracious to me. God washed me. God renewed me. And this is why good works are so hard for us and for the church in general. Because we are not operating out of grace, but we somehow still rely on self-justification. 
We forget about grace and we go back to trying to justify ourselves through good works. Meaning that everybody in this room has a deep need underneath everything to prove yourself. To prove yourself to God, to your parents, to your family, to your friends, even to yourself. So on one hand, we get that God is gracious to us and he loves us. But on the other hand, we're trying and spending most of our time trying to prove ourselves and measure up. So with the offhand, yeah, I get grace, but when I, when I operate on a daily basis, I'm really trying to work this thing out for myself. And here's the important thing. Here's what you have to understand and why Paul is connecting the two and giving this final reminder to Titus and the church at Crete. Self-justification will never lead to the good works that Paul is talking about. If you try to justify yourself in this life, you will never be able to do good works long-term because self-justification will always lead you to self-righteousness. The number one people or group that Jesus had a problem with in the Gospels was the Pharisees. Not because of their sins or because of their struggles, but because they justified themselves. They used the law, they used God's word to make themselves look really good. And they thought, since I did this, since I know this, I'm therefore better than all these other people. Their self-justification led to a self-righteousness that said, I'm better than everybody else, which cut them off from doing any good works for anybody that needed them. When you think you're superior to someone, you cannot serve them. When you think you're better than someone, you cannot love them. But when you realize you're a sinner saved only by the grace of God, it changes everything. It, it really does. It's only when you realize that I can't earn God's love, but he still loves me, that you can rest in him and enjoy him. It is only when you no longer need works to prove yourself that you can actually do ordinary specific ones to real people in your life. I don't need this work to justify myself so I can spend my energy just actually loving this person right in front of me. What God is calling the church to do is really hard, but we have a really big hope. Because it is not us who changes the world. It is our Savior, Jesus. G.K. Chesterton, the British author, contemporary with C.S. Lewis, he said it best. When asked what is the difference between Christ and Satan, he said it is quite simple. Christ descended into hell, Satan fell into it. The man asked, what's the difference? What's the difference between Christ descending into hell and Satan falling into it. Chesterton replied, it makes all the difference in the world. One of them wanted to go up and went down. The other wanted to go down and went up. What's the difference between Christ and Satan? Really, what's the difference between Christ and us, the whole world? We constantly try to go up in our self-justification. We constantly try to go up by proving ourselves, by putting ourselves forward, and we take everything down around us. Jesus wanted to go down, and as a result, by his grace, we are raised up with him. Jesus did not just go down in general for this world. He went down specifically for you. And at the end of this short letter, Paul is telling the church to please remember, please insist on these things. Remember that you have been acted upon by Christ. And you have been acted upon in a very specific way. You've been acted upon by grace. You've been acted upon to justify you 
and to make you his. And that will change the way that you act upon others. It just will. So Christian, what are you for? Good works. Specific good works to actual people in actual places. When Jesus said, love your neighbor, he really meant it. Why are you called to good works? Because that is who you are now. You are a sinner that is saved by grace. And it is this grace, the grace of Jesus Christ, that will not only change you, but will change the world. Let me pray. God, help us. We, we want to stay general. It's much more comfortable. Help us to be specific. Right now, help our hearts know your grace for us. Help our hearts know how much you love us. Help our hearts know that we are justified. And help us be a church that's ready for good works. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.